0: Hi, this is Ananda Maitreya. You are lucky enough to be listening to everything Fab Four on Salon.com.
1: Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon for that matter has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story.
0: So there's this like feature where if you put out music on Spotify, you can see all the playlists people put your songs on. If you actually look at what's on those playlists... It's like a Beatles record. It's like uh, this and then this crazy thing and then this. And and so I do think that the institutional corporate impulse to homogeneity, but then there's also going to be the people's impulse towards heterogeneity and wild diversity and wild contrast.
1: Today's guest is Christine Flaherty, better known as K-Flay, an American singer, songwriter, rapper, and musician. K-Flay attributes the genesis of her musical style to her student years at Stanford University, where she pursued a double major in psychology and sociology. In 2014, K-Flay released her debut album, Life as a Dog. The album reached number 14 on the Billboard Rap Albums Chart and number two on the Billboard Heat Seekers Albums Chart. K-Flay toured extensively once the album was released, including headlining a tour and joining tours with AWOL Nation, Third Eye Blind, and Dashboard Confessional. K-Flay's follow-up album, Everywhere is Somewhere, was released in 2017. She was the opening act for the North American and European legs of Imagine Dragons' Evolve tour. Later that year, she published the book Crush Me, a compilation of notes received from fans. At the 60th Annual Grammy Awards, the standout track Blood In The Cut received a nomination for Best Rock Song, and Everywhere Is Somewhere was nominated for Best Engineered Album, non-classical. In 2020, during the COVID-19 pandemic, k released a three-track EP of cover songs called Don't Judge a Song by Its Cover, with tracks including Break Stuff by Limp Biscuit, Self Esteem by The Offspring, and Brain Stew by Green Day. Recently. K-Flay released a five-track EP called Inside Voices. The latest single is entitled TGIF, featuring Tom Morello on guitar. Welcome, K-Flay. I wonder if you could, uh, since we are a, a Beatles show, as it were, um, if you could tell me about your own Beatles story. Do you remember when you first heard them or how they entered your life? And were they, were they welcomed into your life? <laughs> so, so the Beatles
0: were, you know, the Beatles were a little bit like water in the, the fish tank of my home, you know, they're just sort of there, you know, to the point where I'm not sure I was even aware of the Beatles until, you know, a certain point when I was actually asking questions like, wait, what song is this? I know this song. I'm singing yellow submarine, but who sings it? Um, so, so I think, you know, my parents were, were definitely Beatles over stones, hundred percent. And Yeah, we had a, you know, we had a record player at home and that's, that's how my parents played music. And I was always really drawn to as a kid and perhaps not surprisingly, the kind of like goofy slash druggy, uh, you know, the, the, the acid trip Beatles-ness, um, you know, and I found it incredibly empowering, uh, to shout, I am the egg man, (laughs) uh, (laughs) <laughs> you know it's sort of I think what's interesting about much of much of the kind of like experimental lyrics of the Beatles at that time was you know it, it is quite childish in in a wonderful way it really taps into the spontaneity and unself consciousness of being a young person I think that's like <laughs> to, to me that was very evocative and then I discovered sergeant pepper and that that really stands as my my favorite Beatles record Uh, I love that album I love how playful and bizarre it is I I love a day in the life obviously who doesn't one of my favorite songs of all time and yeah so okay that's that's a synopsis
1: that's my that's my history of the Beatles that's pretty good and um you know something that um, and I, you know, to prepare for today, I went and listened to everything that you have out in the world. Happily. Oh God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I do that. Um, and I'll tell you why that's a it's a good comparison is because there is a trajectory to to K-Flay, You
0: mm-hmm. know,
1: um, that's not always true for a lot of artists, right? They, you know, they start off in one place. Maybe they'll get a hit and they'll stay in that place. Right? The Beatles don't do that. You know, they. They keep blowing themselves up until there's nothing left to blow, and you know, peace out. They walk off the stage forever, which is the smartest move they make. I know that people like your parents and and folks uh, even before my time who listened to them. That's a terrible thing to say, but it's the truth. You know, they've done what they were going to do as artists. So um, you seem to be doing that too, where you kind of blow up your work and and start over again with a, with new ideas and new sounds. Yeah, I, that's very Beatlesque. Well, well, thank you. I appreciate the, the,
0: the comparison. I mean, for me, for me, it stems from a, a starting point of there are no rules. You know, I think one of the greatest blessings and it, for a long time, it felt like a disadvantage for me was that I didn't make music as part of a scene. So like, you know, I'm I, tons of my friends now are like, yeah, I came up playing like garage rock and long beach. And there were all these bands and we were all doing this kind of thing. And we were all influencing each other. And I was a little bit siloed when I was starting to make music, just because I didn't have that community or I didn't know how to access it. I was also really serious about school and, I don't know. I just, I didn't, I didn't have that opportunity to be part of a scene. And for many years I felt, I kind of lamented that it felt lonely and sort of alienating in a sense, but in retrospect, I can see how it has given me total room to explore and change because there really is no, status quo there's really no norm there's really no expectation and that is you know as a as a human being and then as a musician it's just very exciting I think I I can imagine that you know when the Beatles were working on their stuff it's like it's exciting to push the envelope and it's exciting to try new things especially with your friends or your friends who you have a lot of tension with but they're still your friends and uh (laughs) yeah it's just it's a very stimulating way to create music so the the genrelessness in which I have existed for the entirety of my career which when I began was sort of a point of contention every interview I did was like but what what do you do is it this is it that and what's been really interesting is over the years I like basically never get asked that anymore because no one cares And, you know, there's been a huge sea change in terms of, like,
1: what is genre and does it even does it even matter. Right. And why is it that genre is often used as a way of forcing artists, whether they're writers or musicians, to make choices or in a way a commitment of some kind? Right. Right.
0: And, you know, genre, when we break it down, genre is an outgrowth of capitalism genre is a way to sell things you know like Mm -hmm. listeners don't really care about genre but radio stations and stores and record labels care about genres and I think it's interesting just to zoom out a little bit and say like if you say to any 16 year old like what what genre of music do you listen to (laughs) I mean they're gonna laugh in your face they're like, well, I listen to Billie Eilish. I listen to Fidlar. I listen to Youngblood. I listen to whatever the hell they're listening to. Like, they don't care. Um, they're listening to music that makes them feel excited and powerful and possibly like badass. You know, <laughs> that's a, I mean, it, it, in my experience. I don't want to speak for all 16 year olds, but they don't care about genre And (laughs) no, and so, so I think it is kind of informative to, to think like, right, the people who care about genre are the people who are trying to make money off music. The people who don't care about genre are the people who make music and who love
1: listening to music. So then I'm like, well, maybe genre doesn't really matter that much. I think you're 100% correct. I just started, uh, we're doing summer school now here on the Jersey Shore. For and, and I work at Monmouth University and I'm teaching rock and roll in American culture. <laughs> and uh, what's wonderful about it is I asked them on Monday, you know, before we started listening to Robert Johnson or something like that, I asked the students, I said, what do you listen to? And they began to tell me all about it. I took notes, you know, and I have all these lists, mostly because I'm looking for new music, right? I'm just yeah. really in their brains to see what they're listening to. And uh, one kid was talking about genre and he said, you know what? I just like everything except I can never like country. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I hear pretty, that one. I get, I hear that one a lot. Yeah, yeah,
1: and I get that too. Um, you know, I, I can. But what that basically means is they're just open to anything. And when you hear a song and you love it, it doesn't matter what it is at that point. No, yeah. you know, it, and it it, it it even could be country.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and I think you know that fluidity. I mean, we're just generally reaching as a society. I mean, I pray to the Lord we are slowly but surely with fits and jags we are reaching a point in which our society is increasingly accepting of gray area and nuance and fluidity right like we see it even in how we think about sexuality and identity there's a you know i know there are certain people who are still resistant to that but you know but there's a lot of people who aren't and there's a lot of a lot of people who feel very Um, intensely that they have a fluid existence in many ways. And that's, I mean, that's how I feel in my professional life and my personal life. And I think it's a really accurate way to, uh, to kind of assess our, our existence. And so I'm, I'm quite hopeful that this not only the expansion of the gray area but the acceptance and incorporation of the gray area into the way we think about our world will
1: just, will continue. I certainly hope so too. And actually I know it will because I, you know, talking because I spend a lot of my time with 18 year olds, right. And you know, they're very aware about how there's a world out there trying to define them for them. Um, But they really just don't care. And what's beautiful about it is they're not going back. Um, And so, you know, while you see things going on right now at the Supreme Court that are scary, these kids are never going back there. You know, they can maybe have their moment here, this last gasp or what have you, but they're not going back to that place. Uh, Yeah. Powerful. Uh, That's freedom. It is freedom. And,
0: you know, I think freedom is a form of Unself consciousness. I mean, I think there are many forms of freedom, and I think there's many ways to uh, visualize it, right? But in a, in a hyper personal sense, I think freedom is a lack of self consciousness, and the way that we achieve that, and the way that we promote that as a as a society, um, is we we check our expectations and we we burn down these walls we've built, you know, that divide people. And I was just reading Octavia Butler's, the parable of the sower, um, which
1: I would, I don't know if you've read that. I'm doing a book club. I operate here virtually on the shore uh, in the, the coming year. It's a oh, great- okay. Yeah. So, I
0: mean, not, not spoil anything for anyone, but part of this sort of, uh, dystopian version of the united States which isn't that far off from where we are now you know there's just all these communities have built these walls and the notion that like the walls protect uh, which turns out to be you know not true um, or at least it's a a stopgap for 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 this bigger change that is just happening and must happen and i think as we as we eradicate some of those kind of um, semantic walls and societal walls. Yeah. It just gives a lot more people freedom, you know, both literally and figuratively. And that's, I mean, that's, I think what should be one of our primary goals as a society. And, you know, and of course it's like here in the United States with our, you know, levels of incarceration talk about like walls and lack of freedom not to mention the, the, the racial history and injustice tied up in that, but we've got a lot to work on, <laughs> I guess is what I'm saying. Sorry, this, this conversation has gotten quite heavy, but...
1: No, that's okay, yeah. because I started it, and I think our students are willing to do that heavy work by the simple fact that they're probably not... I don't think they will, they will compromise who they are, as some previous generations have done, including the Beatles generation in the 60s, mm-hmm. you know, this was a generation that was willing to in mass follow this amazing band as they blew up everything they ever did and did something else. You know, think about that. Uh, Audiences aren't always that good at saying, okay, I really liked, she loves you and I want to hold your hand. And now you're doing tomorrow. Never knows I'm out. (laughs) Right. Right? Or Sergeant Pepper, or the white album, which blows (laughs) everything they did before. Right. Yeah. So, Uh, And yet, when we look back at the baby boomers, you know, it's hard not to indict them a little bit for not following through uh, on some of the promise of, of their being pioneers in so many sociocultural ways.
0: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's been my observation that the world, as you go through it, the pressure on you will be like this to make your world littler. So I think what happens right when you're 18, the pressures of society are making your world bigger. You're kind of pushed out in this way where expansion seems inevitable. It's not true for everyone, but true for many people. I think the way society is set up right now, it is to isolate and insulate people as they get older and older. And I think that that's such a disservice to our whole society, I think it's such a disservice to to the older generation as they come up. And what I've noticed is that you know people from the baby boomer generation who remain very committed to these progressive ideals that they held as young people and the activism that they may have engaged in. Those those baby boomers didn't. Um, either didn't place themselves in positions where their worlds got smaller. They sort of actively had to seek out those opening and expanding opportunities because they weren't just coming to them. And I think I kind of feel like as a society, if we can, if we can create more structures that are built in, that expand humans across their lifespan, that's when I think we get like super duper openness because The the magical alchemy of being a person who has lived a full life and has the wisdom of that life, who also is exposed and engaging with, exposed to and engaging with the exciting ideas of young people. That's like unstoppable to me. That's the magic. That's the magic formula.
1: We'll be back with more magic from Kay Flay after these messages. This is Everything Fab Four, and we're back with Kay Flay. I wonder if you could say a little bit about uh, songwriting. You know, how do you come up with a song like Blood in the Cut, since I brought it up earlier? how do? You, what's your process? The Beatles gave us, you know, a whole... They gave us generations of people thinking about self-consciously that, hey, I'm writing a song.
0: Right. So, I mean, songwriting for me happens typically in two different ways. The first, and this would be the case with like "Blunt the Cut, um, Four Letter Words off my new EP, TGIF, just a couple examples, which are basically looping a guitar riff or, or a little guitar pattern alone in the studio and almost like stream of consciousness writing. And usually in the course of that, I come up with like a first line quickly and that first line then guides everything else. So in Blood in the Cut, it's the boy I love, Scott, got the girl. He might be bleeping her right now, which was based on a true situation. <laughs> and I was pretty sad when I wrote that song and obviously he's fairly angry and people have, I, you know, I've talked to, sort of a lot about the lyrics of that song because they are sort of random, but also very honest and kind of uncomfortable to listen to, you know, it's kind of like, you're kind of like, Oh God. Okay. Um, But I think for me, that's often what makes me excited about a song is when I just kind of tell it like it is, you know, on four letter words off, off this next project, you know, it's like, I, I drank a liter of tequila in my bedroom. And by the way, I didn't. And people keep asking, they're like, did you? No, I would be dead. But I did drink some tequila. (laughs) Okay, it wasn't a liter. It just sounded great. I drank a liter of tequila. You know, just that internal rhyme. just felt good. I don't even know why I wrote it or why I said it. Um, And, you know, TGIF, same thing. I have this little riff. And then I'm like, the world is run by lunatics. So who gives a fuck? Let's light it up. I was like, ooh, yeah. So. Usually that is how a song starts, a small like progression, typically on guitar, sometimes on synthesizer, that I loop and I just kind of freestyle. And in the process of that freestyling, a first line emerges and then the first line really kind of, you know, allows me to start telling the story and allows me to even know what the story is about. The second way that I write songs is in a group situation or a collaboration situation. Um, and I'd say it's maybe about a 50 50 split in this regard. Um, I'm not exactly, I'd have to break it down, but where I'm set to meet up with somebody I collaborate with. It's like, hey, you know, JT and I are going to get together for a week and write. So then in those situations, it's, it's very similar, but we start that. We, we create that loop or that vibe together. So then we create that vibe together and then I start freestyling and being like, oh, I'm singing melodies. I'm thinking about like, often we start the day by having a conversation like what's going on today with me. Maybe I just came from therapy. Maybe I just had like some epiphanies. Maybe I'm really stressed. Like I wrote a song called this baby don't cry for my last record and that you know i i came into the situation where we're going to work on that song and i had been crying all day and we were talking about like the power of crying and this idea of like you know it's perceived as like being a baby and so i just love the idea of saying like this baby don't cry you know i am a baby i was crying um <laughs> so yeah, those are those are the two ways, but they always start pretty small. I know some artists write like start out at a bigger place, like with a big track or something like that. That's not really how I operate. I like for the music and the lyric to to kind of co-develop um, and and help to inform each other.
1: Yeah, it's more authentic, right? I mean, if the music, yeah, there are songs. <laughs> let's pick on the Beatles too. There, there's a place, an early Beatles song. They're just happy they're getting meals, right? They're thrilled that. Right. On table, right. And they have this really sad song called There's a Place, but you can't listen to it and not hear John Lennon smiling. I mean, he's not feeling bad, but he's singing a song yeah. that's unhappy, you know, and my students always pick up on that. And they're like, that is not musical unity. And they're, yeah. Yeah. you have musical unity. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you. Well, and, you know, I think another part of musical unity in a sense, and this gets into more of a, a production engineering recording. Uh, bent, but, you know, on many, many songs, I have used my demo vocals as the final vocal on the track. And this is, this is advice I give to a lot of young songwriters and musicians, which is like, make sure when you track the song for the first time, you don't do it in horribly shitty conditions, because there's a really good chance you're going to want to use those vocals because there's nothing like there's nothing like how you f- feel when you write something you know and if you're writing emotional music which is what m- many of us are out here doing whether it's angry whether it's super sad whether it's self-reflective you know there is something about that that moment of genesis where you really tap into the feeling now you can re tap into it. And I have examples of songs where I recut the vocal and I did it a lot better. And usually that's because I thought more about what I was talking about. And I kind of re immersed myself in that feeling, perhaps even in a more deep and uh, intentional way. But I-, I do think when music and melody and lyric, co-evolve. There is a, a sense of cohesiveness and unity as you describe that is very palpable to to listeners and
1: and and to, to me as as the the songwriter. Sure. And you described how someone might listen to uh they might listen to Blood in the cut and feel uncomfortable at what you're describing, but it's an uncomfortable situation. I mean it's authentically uncomfortable to feel right. like the narrator in that song. You know, and most people at one point or another have felt those or part of those emotions. And that's, that's real.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm a pretty firm believer that one of the points of music, uh, from a kind of like interconnectedness standpoint is music is like a three minute way for somebody who has a busy and complicated life where they don't get to sit around and make songs for a living it is a way for them to get in touch with feelings that they already have to to help work through those feelings to exercise some demons to feel a sense of like non-isolation in the world you know there's all these purposes and so i've found that it's it's useful for me to to be honest, in my, in my lyricism, because undoubtedly, there's not, there are many other people who also have felt that maybe they don't have the time or space to express it. But if I, if I express it, well, then here's a quick way for them to be like, Oh, yeah, me too.
1: Yeah, right into that.
0: And that's, <laughs> and, that, and that feels that feels like useful, you know, because I, I hope, you know, I don't want to just be like, self-indulgent i hope that i hope that my music is at least useful to people
1: well you know i think one of those useful songs is definitely tgif um <laughs> which uh you know if you were channeling a beetle i think it's john lennon uh you know he's his famous line that the world is run by insane people with insane motives and you just blow that thing right out the door um, with your opening to that song. Can you tell me about the writing of that? How does, because that had, um, you know, where you can feel the emotional edge of blood blood in the cut. This was a very different kind of emotion with a real emotion that people have, which is rage.
0: Yes. So this song, I, I began writing at the the tail end of the Trump presidency. And You know, at a moment, too, when I was doing a lot of thinking personally about capitalism and many of the underpinnings, right, racism, misogyny, like patriarchy. These are kind of built into our economic system that governs this country and other countries. And I'm thinking, man, this system's crazy. It's kind of bad. But, oh, my God, I'm out here like I'm part of it. You know, like I want to burn it down. But unfortunately, I also live here. So, like, the problem is if you burn down your own house, you don't have anywhere to live. And that was like I was struggling with with that tension of like here I am railing against an institution and an ideology. And yet I'm like I'm I'm fucking part of it. And... (laughs) Uh, which is always a disturbing uh, thing to consider. We are the disease. So (laughs) we are the disease. I mean, right. And so I'm thinking about this stuff. I'm also thinking about like how this idea about Friday is just hilarious to me. Like how we've built this entire culture on like, it's Friday, like TGIF, like let's let's drink, let's party. And it's like, I kind of feel like not to sound like a Marxist, you know, that's the bourgeoisie tricking all of us into like celebrating a made up thing in order to motivate us to get back to work on Monday. And okay. So all this is like swimming in my head and then I'm just randomly playing guitar and I'm just like, bum, bum, bum. I was experimenting at the time with, um, I've been getting a lot better at guitar during quarantine just because I've had nothing else to do. And <laughs> I, <laughs> so I was like interested in like adding more bends to things that I was doing, not just to play everything so angular and straight. And so I was just going, bum, bum, bang, bum, bang. I thought sounded cool. I thought I had a lot of like swagger and attitude. So I tracked it. I looped it, as you know, um, I made like a little kind of trashy, like just the little basic drum loop in like, um. I think I did it in like my addictive drums, just little kit, whatever. And I started writing, you know, the world is run by lunatics. So who gives a fuck? Let's light it up. Let's make a mess. Let's coalesce. Let's make a fuss. And I, so I wrote that whole thing kind of just as one freestyle. And I was like, oof, that's cool. And then I wrote this part about, thank God it's Friday. I don't know. I was just all over the place. And that was it. I left for the day and I thought, well, that was weird. <laughs> <laughs> and, but then I played it for two of my friends and they were like, that's like actually pretty cool. I Like they were like, that's so strange. You know, it's never, it's not something you would ever write in a songwriting session. It isn't, you know, it's, it doesn't make sense in a way. Like the structure is weird. The lyrics are kind of insane, blah, blah, blah. but, that was the, that was the motivation. And then, you know, they, they really encouraged me keep going with this, keep working. So I wrote my second verse. I actually love the second verse of that song.
1: Is that the, um, acoustic, the, the acoustic part?
0: So that I would call the acoustic part, like the pre-chorus. I
1: don't okay. know.
0: I'm thinking the second verse
1: is after the first drop. Um, you can call it anything you want. Cause you're genre defying. Okay. Thank you very much. Right. I mean, you don't have to. <laughs> yeah.
0: Fuck, fuck these rules of structure. Right. Um, all <laughs> <laughs> I can call, call the that. chorus the verse, uh, <laughs> but the second verse, which is, um, the world is run by maniacs. So I'm making art. I'm going hard. I'm taking names, acting insane, breaking guitars. Um, you know, I just, I just felt like I'm going to lean into this, which is the world's insane. What is my recourse? My recourse is music and creativity, which unfortunately is part of the system still, but at least it's like challenging the system. So I'm doing something out here. And uh, yes, I'm now meandering. I even forget what the original question was, but that's sort of how TGIF evolved. And then we took that like little riff and we layered the crap out of it. We recorded drop C guitar, like gnarly, just you know um and then of course tom morello i asked him to play on it he ripped thematically the song is uh, you know tom's longtime activist longtime badass um so it was just it was just an amazing amazing collaboration all by midwesterners all by very polite people that's what's funny about it
1: northern illinois folks
0: just just (laughs) polite ass people made that song the world should know that some of the most Tom is like one of the most polite people in rock and roll. Same. Me too. And the two producers are like very polite.
1: <laughs> how did, how are the folks back in, uh, will met taken things.
0: <laughs> mm. Well, you know, my, my parents, um, my parents moved from the suburbs of Chicago to the Bay area. Like, 15 years ago or something like that. So they, they've been out of that area for a long time. So I don't really know my, fi- and, and my brother and sister left as well. So nobody's, nobody's there anymore. And none of my, all my friends left. So there was like a mass exodus to the coasts. Um, but I presume everything's probably the same, you know, it's a pretty, not much is going on over there.
1: well you know and that that exodus 15 years ago or whenever matches a lot of movements in the united states at the same time by lots of other people Mm -hmm. there's a there is a movement toward um, you know population centers and and that sort of thing Um, i'm glad you mentioned the tom morello uh, contribution because he really he brings a lot to the song uh and and actually that's what's amazing about it um you know you're not just genre defying in terms of you know, the body of work that is K-Flay, but also inside a song. There are several different (laughs) things going on there um, that are sort of, excuse this, you know, English lit crit word, but they're hybridized together, right? Yeah, let's go. Yeah. But they work.
0: (laughs) I mean, I really appreciate you saying that. I, I think as I, you know, every time I work on a record, I'm gaining... I'm gaining confidence in this in this uh, to use another word that I know from my um my best friend who's an English professor from this liminal space, you know. Oh, I hit <laughs> you with it. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, I'm a nerd, so don't you worry. Um but yeah, like the liminality, right? Like this is that's kind of where I'm at constantly. And there's um there is fear and there's uncertainty in that state, but it's, it's the state when amazing things happen. And, you know, I'm really, I'm really pleased and excited about this, this new music I've been working on because I feel like I'm starting to like further hone in on all my influences and how, and, and, and not even like consciously like, well, how do I integrate like this with this, but just, but just, it, it kind of happening in a more natural way because I, but because I do have that confidence.
1: It's amazing um, how freeing that is. One of the last things John Lennon said, I'd just written about him uh, in a book, was um, you know within a, an hour maybe of him no longer being with us. He's, he just finished this song with his wife, Walking on the Ice, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, this is the direction. And I love that line because it's like, he doesn't know that it's over. And yet he is still excited that he's yeah. found it, that there's this space that opened up and he can see in it, you know, and the things he must have seen that we'll never know. Um, I think that's amazing. That is amazing. I love I love
0: that. This is the direction. Yeah. And, and I, I don't know. I think, you know, you have these moments of clarity in life. And the clarity changes because everything's changing. But when you have that sense of clarity and self-connection and self-awareness, it's just a very powerful feeling and a very invigorating and exciting feeling. And I think for me, I've been in a, in a creative sense in that world. Um, and, and, you know, I think one of the great things about The Beatles as it seems to me, and you, you are, I I am not the expert, but as a, you know, avid listener, it seems to me that there's a sense of, this is the direction constantly a little bit, you know, and, and maybe John felt like, well, shit, only now have I seen the direction. But of course, in the, in the moment, like when they're making the white album, I have to think, someone in the room is thinking or feeling
1: this is the direction. <laughs> <laughs> no, they have to be because they, they basically spent 1967 as you referred to earlier in this kind of psychedelic place right, uh, with lots of musical color and experimentation. And now they've all picked up the guitars again and they've either double backed on what that was Or they've just taken a right or a left turn, whichever direction they were thought they were going and and left it and, you know, just blew it apart.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I don't know how much you listen to Beck, but, you know, I think I think for a modern rock artist, I, I, you know, to me, he is one of the most experimental and shape shifting people out there and a huge inspiration to me. And I think about a record like Midnight Vultures which I don't know how much time you have spent with that record. It's one of my favorite records of all time. It's so weird. I, I mean, it's like, what is this guy doing? You know, but it's fucking awesome. And I just have so much love for people. And it, these authors, actors, musicians, like just individuals, whatever, fashion designers who, who basically just say like, Okay, I, I've done this thing. Now I'm doing this thing. Now I'm going to do this thing. And none of it none of it means I can't do anything else. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like you, you build off the past and you learn things, but it doesn't mean you need to recreate the past. And just because people liked you doing one thing doesn't mean you need to keep doing it. I mean, people have a lot of opinions about Kanye West, also one of my favorite musicians of all time talk about a shape shifting dude. Like, I mean, he's a ge- he's a musical genius, in my opinion, and constantly pushing the envelope musically and constantly doing things that no one else is doing. Like a true pioneer. Um, and I and I love that about him. You know, I regardless of his personal life or anything else. As a musician, I'm just like, I I think this guy is just operating at a, (laughs) he's somewhere.
1: It makes sense that, uh, that Sergeant Pepper is your favorite. Um, And actually the Beatles generally, because of the way they just, uh, the way they sequence their music is very important too. Right. Because they'll go from a song like, uh, I don't know, God, it's crazy. Right. You'll have happiness is a warm gun Uh with all that thrashing metal. And then it's Martha, my dear. Right. Right, you know, it's like intentionally trying to throw you off. Just experience Revolution Nine. We have really, we've shape shifted your head, and now we're gonna we're gonna give you good night. Ringo's gonna sing this thing. Take it away, Ringo. Let's close it out. You know, <laughs> poor Ringo. <laughs> Just um, no, I
0: think yeah the the exercise in contrasts is exciting as a listener. I'm sure it was exciting for them. As creators and you know in the in the current climate of you know people lament often like playlist culture or whatever on Spotify that it's like ruining music well to counter that I will say again most um so there's this like feature where if you put out music on Spotify you can see all the playlists people put your songs on and I'm um, we, we did this kind of as like a joke thing on TikToks so or whatever. But I'm like going through all the playlists like certain songs are on, the names of them, they're funny, whatever. But side note, if you actually look at what's on those playlists, it's like a Beatles record. It's like uh this and then this crazy thing and then this. And and so I do think to our point, there yes, there's always going to be the the culture and the um the, the institutional corporate impulse to homogeneity but then there's also going to be the people's impulse towards heterogeneity and wild diversity and wild contrast and I just like thank God for that <laughs>
1: Fab4 is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980: The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit. The High Octane Beatles Cover Band and Innovative Psychedelic Rock Project from Rockaway Beach, Queens, in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab 4? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4 Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab 4 is a wonderful all production with editing and post production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world and everyone has a story.